Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 17 of the Howie Games. Great to have you on board. Now, in no way would I be so presumptuous to say this episode will change your life. I don't think it will at all. But it just may cause you to ask yourself some questions about where exactly you are in life and what direction you'd like to head in next. I hope so anyway. You know when you meet someone in life and they have a profound effect on you? Well, Trevor Hendy is one of those people to me. As a competitor, Trev had no peer. Four consecutive World Ironman titles, six-time Australian Ironman champion, four times Uncle Toby Super Series winner. Trev was like a big, blonde, muscly god of the waves. Trevor Hendy, simply in the water, was a freak. Hey, gang, Pickle here. Hi, crew. Big Penguin here, too. We have an exciting announcement about the Howie Games, haven't we, Pengy? My word, we do, Pickle. What was it again? Come on, Pengy, about the next group of episodes. Oh, that's right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get on with it, Penguin. I'm building the suspense, Pickle. No, Penguin, you're losing the audience. In fact, you've lost them. More with our big announcement during the app. You're killing me, Pickle. I had the enormous pleasure of working with Trev for three glorious summers on the Kellogg's Ironman series for Network 10. And Trev is the most positive person you could meet. And he was always there just to sort of gently nudge you along in the direction of almost being a better version of yourself, a fitter you, a happier you, a more compassionate you, a more complete you. Hence why Trev is now an elite life coach. Although life coach, that description doesn't really do me justice at all. Trev's more almost a modern day guru for want of a better term. That's probably how how I'd best describe him. In this ep, Trev talks about his family history, being the best of the best, starring in Baywatch, if you don't mind, alongside Pamela Anderson going bankrupt, what makes his mate Kelly Slater so very, very, very good, and how to surf big, big, big waves. I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, on the Howie Games, the great one, Trevor Hendy. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Well, we find ourselves in a little hotel room in the Mantra opposite the MCG with the great Trevor Hendy. Trev, welcome to the Howie Games, as I like to call this little podcast. With the great Mark Howard. No, with the great <laughs> Trevor Hendy. How are you? As always, you Good look mate. absolutely fantastic. You. you look a million bucks. Thanks, mate. That's good. Um, we normally sort of start this by saying if you were in a pub and a bloke come up to you and said, oh, my name's Howie, nice to meet you, Trev, what do you do? Mm. What do you do? I get asked this all the time mm. and I don't think I've ever answered it the same way twice because I, I have a very particular job that I do that's got not really a very um, uh, easily arrived at title. Which so, is you all over. Yeah, yeah. So what do I do? I basically help people free out of their baggage, release their baggage in life, um, to unhook or unshackle from patterns, problems, behaviours, things that they've have plagued them for a long, long time. The, a lot of those things are very deeply personal for people and often go a long way back. And what I do is when the person releases that stuff, they then feel what it feels like to be them without that 
worries, concerns, fears, um, memories of things that went wrong, all that sort of stuff. So I help people release that baggage and when what they're left with is more of themselves. And then when they're left with that feeling of who they really are, then they put that into whatever their passion or their bent is. So they become better. If it's a policeman, they're a better policeman. If they're a footballer, they're a better footballer. Or a surfer is a better surfer. Or a, 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 you know, a mother and a housewife becomes a, a better, more balanced mother and housewife. So it's about being free. And um, at the end result is people feel more loving and connected and caring, but also more alert and aware and understanding of what what really tripped them up in the first place. So I help people kind of get their own life back in a sense. So if you're listening, just tune in for the next hour and you're going to be flying by the yeah, end yeah, of this. Yeah, that's right. But, but your, your explanation there is why I'm, I'm really so stoked to be sitting down here opposite of you and, you know, you, you made a massive impression on me in our time that we've worked together, which we'll get to, but let's go way back. Uh, mm. a, a young Trevor Henley, a little Trev, what's first uh, Trev's first memories? Where did it all start for you? Well, we're sitting in this hotel room in Melbourne. Yep. I now live on the Gold Coast um, and, and I work down here a lot, but I was born in Melbourne, so I was born in Preston, into a, a family that were, you know, a hardworking dad and an honest mum and in society that, you know, they had the picket fence and the, the house that my dad built. He actually qualified himself as a mechanic and a carpenter and loved his wife and his, you know, uh, eight-year-old daughter, three-year-old son and came up, me being me, I'm the yeah. three-year-old son, by the way, and uh, came home one day and had a feeling or realisation. In his words, he said, I noticed everybody was saving their money and travelling the world. And he said he thought it was mad to travel the world before he travelled his own country. And he went, well, I'm going to travel my own, co- uh, my own country. Why don't I just do the whole lot in one hit? And in fact, if I'm going to do that, why don't I find out if there's actually somewhere better for us than here? How old was your dad at this stage? My dad was um, 38 years old. In 19... So we're talking 1971. 1971. It's a big, big decision for a bloke living behind a picket fence. Yeah, totally. Um, And... It's just a beautiful man, very uh, courageous, honest, simple man that got in and got the work done all the time. And so what he did, we came home to my mum and she said, he said, look, let's pack up everything, sell everything, travel around Australia. And what he didn't want to do, he sort of revealed to me more later, he had a sense that he felt like the trodden path that everyone that was on wasn't so fulfilling. He had two qualifications and he had the best job. Everyone was telling him he should be blissfully happy, but Mm. he had this feeling like there was something missing. So he didn't want to settle into something that didn't feel like home to him, you know, and so he he felt more of a sense of adventure and he did all the right things first and then went, hang on, there's no reason why I can't do the right things for me, right? you know, now. So mum agreed to her credit, her strength. She was like, okay, Ron, let's do it. And they sold up everything, bought a caravan. We had a single cabin blue Dodge truck, 1971, left Melbourne. Preston. Travel around, yeah, left Preston. <laughs> Actually, we're living in Layla. Right. And um, and David Street Layla we're living in and, and uh, in our beautiful little house. And, and we left there to drive around Australia at whatever pace. And he had a certain amount of money saved. He had stuff in storage, house sold, and um, basically was going to work his way around. So... We left there and we stopped. Uh, so we left at lunchtime and stopped a couple of hours later at Mildura. <laughs> Do you remember this? I, I, I don't remember that. Right. I remember that we stayed there and we picked, um, what would you pick in Mildura? Olives maybe? Okay. Um, so we, we stopped and we picked, there was a picking season. So, so you're, we, you're, you're three. I'm three. And I remember, I vaguely remember picking 
olives. I can't remember what we or beans. It might have been there. I can't remember, but but I remember this this story was my mum and my uh, cousin. Um, if I could, every time I could fill a bucket or something like that, it was a certain amount of buckets. They'd buy me a jelly tip ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I remember that part. I remember those little, you know, little waivers of things like that. Um, but the funny thing is, we drove just to Mildura, Trevor in Australia, just up the road, and we stayed there for six weeks in Mildura. <laughs> in Mildura. So that's what we did for the rest for two, basically over two years. I think it was two and a quarter years. We travelled around Australia, went right up the east coast. Inland, in and out. I think we did the Bullier track and we came back over the coast, did that. We went over, did up Northern Territory, then back over to Western Australia, down all the way. Now, long story short about this was my dad used to have an amazing thing that he used to do was we'd travel up and we'd pull up on the side of the road and park the caravan. He'd pull off in a dirt little patch and he would go grab the gun out and he would go off and hunting rabbits. And often that, either hunting rabbits or fishing if we were near water. And often that would be our dinner. So everything would be, our meat would be frozen, but if they could get something fresh, we'd have something fresh. So we'd go and do that that sort of stuff. And my sister and I would go with him. And he would walk us and change directions all over the place. And then he'd get us a long way away from camp. Mum was busy organising dinner or cleaning mm. things up. And then he'd say, all right, who wants to show us the way back? So my sister and I would have to show us, you know, show the three of us which way back. So after the first couple of times, you realise you've got to keep track and you've got to keep your bearings and everything else. And I, I say this story because as we get further into what I've done and my experiences and everything, I always had this sense of what's the right way home. And if I've ever gone off the track too far, which I have in my life, I've got yeah. off track and done things that was like, oh, it wasn't really in ethical to me, yeah. lost myself a little bit, I could find my way back. And I thought, oh, now I'm off track, you know. And so I think about it and I think, oh, how amazing because my dad literally ingrained that in me at three and my sister at eight years old. And we would be anywhere, Northern Territory, Northwestern Australia, anywhere, and he'd walk us off through the thing and he'd go, which way is it? And, you know, and I'd point, it's that way, you know, that time. And he could turn corners and around rocks and climb it, that's that way, and then we'll take us home and I'd take us back to the caravan, you know, every time. That's all me and my sister. So, what, what an incredible man to have that. Mm. Like, I, I look, I've got a couple of young kids now, as you know, they're six and four. And, I, you know, I often sit there and think, wow, you know, I've been fortunate to see a lot of the world as I've got older. I think, wow, maybe, you know, you know, the caravan or the overseas trip and out of school. And there's so many things that stop you doing that. And mm. that's in 2016, yeah. let alone in 1971, where I, I can imagine he went into your your sister's school and they would have said, what are you talking about? You yeah. can't rip your daughter out of school and just go. Now yeah. I can understand why you are who you are. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we are now homeschool our daughter and I yeah. just realised the connection that, oh, my God, I'm following my dad's footsteps. Yeah. But, but um, the incredible thing was my sister would did, did correspondence, so she did school right around the country and would send it off from the post office and pick up the next thing and stuff like that because there's no computers or anything. Then you couldn't go online and do your classes. And one of the brightest, growing up to be one of the brightest, most beautiful ladies you'll ever meet, my sister, you know, such an amazing, successful lady on all levels. And I think a lot of that stuff, ingraining in your kids that get out and see your own country, we, we would go and stay in Aboriginal communities and, and we, we connected. I have a really deep connection with, with the Indigenous culture in Australia because I part of my growing up, part of my heritage at a young age, part of the, the love and connection I experienced as a kid was in those environments. And so I can walk in, and I think about it now, I have members of my own family, my own kids that a spider runs across the floor or a cockroach and they're freaking out and I'm like, oh, let's pick it up and take it outside. <laughs> 
I'm like, oh, you know, clearly I must be okay with it. But that came from those periods because we used to just mix and mingle. And I know it's so almost bad these days in 2016 that we're all on screens, you know, we're all doing that sort of stuff. And we've lost touch with that part of nature that slows us down and really reminds us who we really are. We, we, we can't even be still. The largest percentage of the population has a lot of trouble being still or walking into a room without turning on a radio or a television or something to fill the space or the, you know. Or, or to have the telly on and be watching what people are saying about the television show on the social screen media syndrome. And, and maybe one earphone in listening to the Howie yeah. games. I, I, yeah, I don't yeah, know. So, let's so, hope. so, yeah. what, uh, what's so it was a gift. It was at that, that period, three to five years old, travelling around Australia was absolutely a oh. gift. I learned how to swim in the in the Daly River in Northern Territory right. as a four-year-old. And we stayed one stage there for about six weeks or so. When we left, we found out about two months later that there was a, a 15-foot crocodile living 100 metres down no, from where we used to drift down. No wonder you became a good swimmer. I was a great swimmer. I had this sense that i got to get out in a hurry. We used to have to swim back to the camp, you know. And so I just think of that. I, even now when I think of it, it just fills me up. It's just like, oh, what an amazing experience. But we went all the way down to Western Australia and we stayed at Port Hedland. And my mum said to my dad at some stage in Port Hedland, love, there's a lot of work here. There's a lot of work available. It's a beautiful climate. I think this is it. I think what we'll do, two weeks' time, we'll finish this little job I'm doing. Two weeks' time, we'll drive back to Melbourne. We'll, we'll pack up the you know, the um, storage and we'll come back and settle in. And I think for about the next eight or ten days from that night, it poured raining. In Port Hedland? In Port Hedland. Which is unusual. Flooded the whole place. The flooded the whole place. And then my dad, we had to wait, wait, wait. My dad couldn't wait to get out of there. So when we left, so it was a little bit of divine intervention because it skipped me. It was like, no, the family's got to be on the other side of the country. So we ended up basically, I think, a very similar latitude on the other side of the country um, at the Gold Coast. And he, that was his second favourite spot that he'd visited. Right. And it was pretty young and fresh at that stage. And uh, so we finished the journey off all the way and um, and finished on the Gold Coast. Back to Trev in a moment. Okay, Pengy, it's time for our big announcement. Finally. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Clock's ticking, big penguin. Oh, clock you, pickle. So, with the big bash about to start, we on the management team on the Howie Games have decided to go. Big bash flaming crazy. I like it, penguin. I like it a lot. During the big bash, every Thursday as always... We will bring you the biggest names from this year's Biggest Bash. Epic! Ponting. Really? Yes. Hodge. Are you sure? Yes. Siddle. P-City. Yes. Sangakara. Now you're getting carried away. Really? Peterson. Don't believe you. Believe it, Pickle. McCollum. True story? Maybe. My people are talking to his people. You don't have people, Penguin. Proof's in the pudding, Pickle. The big stories behind the big bash, big boys, starts next week on the Howie Games. Woo-hoo! Back to Trev. When we used to work on the Ironman mm. together, I'll never forget um, the first time I spent any time with you and Guy Leach. I think you ordered a, a soy... <laughs> 
decaf, <laughs> soy chai, chai latte, <laughs> no milk, no taste, no sugar, and lychee was like a double espresso with six sugars. And I thought, <laughs> and he said to me, I remember being out to dinner just with him. He said, you know, the thing about Trev was we used to, and I've relayed this to you. We used to sit on the start line, and he would have this smile on his face, and I would look at him, and I would think. Oh, he's done extra training. He knows things that I don't know. And I put that to you and you were like, oh, I was just stoked to be out there running and swimming and with my mates and that made me happy. So yeah. I don't know if your fellow competitors really knew what was driving you at that point to yeah. become the most dominant, you know, water athlete the country's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I think there was two phases of my competition too. The one I just explained before was the early phase, the angry phase, and it was still well hidden. So... I was best mates with all of them as well and I was happy and it was all joyous but I, it was hiding something. And then what happened later on, I started to release that something that was hiding and then I was actually more happy. So that was the point where Leachie was going, what the hell? Like I, I won five, we had seven Uncle Toby's races one year and it was this is when I first started waking up and I, I'd already broken all the records before that. There was the first year I got three firsts and two fifths or something like that, two firsts, a third and two fifths. So that was the record to two-fifths is your worst result, you know. And the next year I won the series with two-fourths and the rest were better. And then the next year I won the series with two-thirds and, you know, the rest were better. And then the next year I had a clap out and I had a meltdown and I had an uncle had passed away and I really fried, it really fried me. And I was finding myself drinking and part, you know, we used to just party after race. I'd party before the race and started to get that dysfunctional aspect and, and that's when it all turned. And so it was a year where I lost the series, lost the Australian Championship and lost my way, lost my mojo, lost my way, lost everything. And I, I got helped out and, and some people said, no, no, there's more to life. You're doing everything you know, but there's more than that. And um, so literally what happened was I cleared and freed this out and started looking at life as a more holistic thing. And I freed some of that baggage. So I come out next year and I'd done less training uh, I'd done some amazing things to correct things in my life. I, life was humming along and I'm standing on the line like I'm already living the dream. And that was really dangerous because I'm now fit, healthy, already living the dream. And out of the seven races, I got five firsts and two seconds in that ser- series. And in the last race, I was literally standing on the line and I've already wrapped the series up and I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I'm looking out. And there's a famous photo that Harvey Allison, the photographer, mm. is standing behind Grant Kenny, who is now, he was like my father in the sport. And Grant's on the ski commentary and he had this little helmet on his head with two antennas like my favourite Martian because he's going to go out and paddle on the ski and he needed the, the you know, the reception. And he's looking a lot, he's, Grant's looking over and I'm looking along the line and everybody else is freaking out. And I'm there thinking, oh God, I love this sport and I love my mates and it's so good to be here. And it's, Shannon Eckstein does that a bit more these days. And I reckon Hawthorne Football Club do it a little bit too. Yeah. And I think Geelong did it for a while. All the greats do it for a while. And But I stood there and I was in this moment and it just, it's not so much being a great, it's being in a great moment. You're actually present. And I remember looking over and Grant's looking at me and he's blown away that I'm just like laughing and smiling. And the first thing I did was put my two fingers on top of his head like to mimic his little antennas. <laughs> and I'm like this and smiling at him like, bim, and he's laughing his head off at me. So the photo's from behind him with Grant with his two antennas and it's got the whole start line in view with me over one side just on Grant's right shoulder with my two things <laughs> smiling. Along the rest of the photo, everyone else is swinging, tensing, they're swinging yeah. their arms and everything else and freaking out. And literally that was the last race of the series and, and I went out there and I think about 10 minutes to go, I'm in about eighth spot, you know, and I went, 
oh, oh, I might as well win this one too and just took off, you know. And you see the great footy clubs and everything, they just turn a switch and – and I just took off and, and came all the way through the field, came through, led the run leg and, and then won the race. And I was just like, oh. And people don't want to know when you say, oh, it's actually quite easy. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually easy for anyone who gets in that space. It's not like – it sounds funny, but you start – people go, oh, you're a superhero and you're a freak and you're amazing. And part of me in the early days would go, yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, yeah, yeah, you know, like – and then later on, I was like, no, that's actually not what it is. It's I've been very blessed and had the right people around me and I've got the right things inside of me as well. But when you get in the moment and you get in the flow, it's crazy what you can do. So I started to realise I raced through the rest of my career and that would annoy the hell out of Leachie and yeah. everyone else because they'd be just like, God. What does he know that I they'd don't be, know? They'd warm up for an hour before and I'd rock down yawning and going, oh, I had the best sleep. Where's my skiing board? And I'd put it on the line and everything else. And I'd go out and maybe do a 360 on my paddleboard or do one re-entry or whatever. And then I'd come up and I'd go, oh, ready to go. And I'd stand there and I'd look over and I'd smile. And I'd be smiling at Leachie like, hey, mate, you know, like, oh, how good's this? You know, got a crowd. And I'd be smiling thinking that. And he's thinking, what does he know that I don't know? He must have done extra training. And, did you know. his head in. He told me it did his head in. But, but yeah. that, that life, Trev, before you became that person you more are now. Yeah. Uh, my memories of you are, you know, six foot four and like that song goes full of muscles and you yeah. had tan, you had your Eating tiny speedos on. Yeah, and you had your <laughs> long hair and you just, you were like the quintessential what everyone wanted to be, the Australian yeah. man. And Iron Man was everywhere. It was front page, it was back page. How crazy did life get when you were one of the most well-known, most desirable, everyone, you know, every bloke wanted to be you. It's that expression, every girl wanted to be with you. What was life like? Huh. For you at that stage, and you're a very different person than I imagine to the, the boat sitting across from me now. Absolutely, I. Um, it's so funny you say this because, firstly, aren't we amazing creators? Because that's the vision that I wanted. I well, you had that. it, mate. You and had I, it, and I knew I was. I didn't consciously know I was creating it, but I was riding the wave when I created it. So I was like full on. That was who I thought I was. So you know there was. That's where I kind of started to get out of integrity. You know, we had infidelities. We had all sorts of stuff. It was the one constant party. We were like rock stars wherever we went. And I started to actually feel when you've got a license, it's like the license to kill, you know, and, and all of a sudden, what do you do with that? You know, and so I started, there was a lot of dysfunctional things happening. But the funny thing is, I just was with Nathan Buckley today and we were talking about evolution and people evolving and, and what what's big to you and what your next learning, what your next lesson is for a player, for a coach, for an administrator, for whoever it is, for a human being. And I said to him, I said to him, oh, you know, it's funny that at one stage I was winning and I was feeling like amazing and I felt super, super confident, but I was doing things that I was totally at odds with. They were not values that my mum and dad were into. I was, I was off track, you know. So I had this incredible feeling, but that sugary feeling coats up all the, oh, there's something not right here, you know. So the close people around me would be rattling saying there's something not right. My wife at the time, that sort of stuff, they'd be like, oh, something not right. But how hard is it to resist that sugary feeling? You oh, describe it as a sugary feeling. Well, it's, you've got the license to kill. It's like you, a bowl of ice cream and you can eat it whenever you want. And the justification is that I've trained really hard and no one knows what I go through and I've done all this for you and for him and for her and for that and for everything else and I'll take a bit of that if I want. So it's the, like the sugary feelings built on the little sugar monster as well that says I can do whatever I want. Mm. And then what do you get? And this is what we get with a lot of our footballers and our swimmers and our cricketers and you know our sports people. Athletes. We basically go, 
you're a legend, you're amazing, and we put them up on a pedestal. And if they haven't got a sense of who they are, I often say to the footballers, I say, you're not a footballer, you're a human being that loves football. Yeah. If you're a footballer, when you finish football, it's going to be a fall. You're not. You're a human being that loves football. Let's learn from football for a while, but while, during this period, work out who you are so you know where you're going afterwards. Not only that will will give you more longevity in your career, it'll really define the way you play as well. So I'm kind of helping people more with what I missed at the time, you know, what my coach and people around me missed. But here's the funny thing is exactly today I was talking to Bucks and I said to him, mate, there was a period I went through and I thought about this two nights ago. I was clearing some stuff in myself and I was trying to help someone else and I had the thought, oh my God, I remember when I felt like that and I heard on the news it was like a Channel 9 Wild Water Sports thing and I think it was Gibbo did this special on Trevor Hendy, this you know enigma, blah, 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 and they said he's the man that every guy wants to be, every girl wants to be with and every guy wants to be like. And I remember at that stage going, yes, you know, like, that's my ultimate dream. I've won. Everyone wants to be respected and loved and idolised and feel like they're the centre of everything. So it feeds all those insecurities inside of us and makes you feel like you're something, but it's built on this really weird, unstable base, if that makes sense. But I literally shared that with Bucks today and you just brought up that exact thing, you know, so I'm like... But he he would have lived that. He was the biggest footballer in Melbourne for four years at the biggest club. That's, you know, the world was his oyster. I often, for the 99% of the population that sits back and looks at that and says, oh, I can't believe they did that or I can't believe they did that, I often wonder how... I would have, let alone the other 99% of the population, would have dealt with life being handed you on a platter and saying just yes, 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 Trev, yes, Trev, yes. You want to do that? Yes, Trev. You want to go there? Yes, Trev. You want to spend this? Yes, Trev. You want to buy that? It's just yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's just yes. Yep, that's right. And Um, we, 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 uh, especially the modern media, we slay people for that. How could they have done that? Whether it's Nick Kyrgios acting the way he's acting at the moment, but. I reckon the average punter in the street, if his life was yes, 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 then most of us, I think, at some stage would sample that life, surely. You have to be a very strong person to just say, "Uh, no, 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 it's not me. No, I I agree totally. And I so now in part of my sort of almost mopping up my own mess, Mm. I'm going around helping other people mop up that mess sometimes before they've even created it, sometimes just mid-creating it, sometimes post-creating it. And all those different layers, it's almost like I'm being there. You know, they say, what would you tell the younger version of yourself? Well, I'm doing it every day (laughs) because I'm helping people at all these different levels. And I've got some amazing people that I'm working with, but two that are more public is Bucks and, and Kelly Slater, who both had that same tag. You know, that the person that everyone else wants to be like and all that sort of stuff. And I tell you, it's hugely challenging to be those people without a sense of who they are. And, and they're, all, you know, they're two people that have done it really well and, and worked out who they are and redefining it as they go. But it's, that's everybody falls into that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, um, as you say, it's a lure. I often call it the, um, the temptation or the, the um, seduction of it, yeah. that seduction of that thing. And, well, here's the funny thing. When you're totally allowed to and you're justified and everything else, the real test is whether you will. You know, it tests your character. It tests what you're really about and maybe not even what you're really about but where you're at in your where consciousness, you're at, where you're yeah, at in your development. That. So I never, ever work with somebody and go, oh, why did you do that? I go, mate, I totally get it. Let's have a work through. What are you really about? Let's work through it. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, my God, 
I did this. And I'm like, yeah, no problems. How's that feel? No, it felt horrible. You know, so it's amazing when someone looks after you and cares for you. And this is what happened for me and it's why I'm trying to pay it forward or I'm not trying, I'm, I am paying it forward, is that um, when you someone looks after you and gives you a space to have your own realisations, you find your own answers and you correct yourself. In the world, what we're doing is we're not only scolding athletes, we're scolding kids left, right and centre, lost youth in the street. They're all doing things that we've all had the same feeling at some stage. Mm. I want to punch that guy in the face. We had the feeling, but oh, but well, I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, but you weren't exposed to it for as long as he did. Yeah. You weren't beaten by his, by your father for as long as he was. Walk in you, another man's shoes. You, yeah, I love that saying. I use it all the time. You, you know, you cannot know a man until you walk a mile in his moccasins, you know. That, <laughs> it's the old, I think it's an old Cherokee saying or it's just been adapted to make it sound cooler. <laughs> this, is, this is a bizarre <laughs> version of Howie Games because your beautiful wife, Joe, is Joe, sitting, sitting right on the there. bed yeah. uh, listening as we go, which... Um, oh, some of what I don't want to tell about what I've been because <laughs> Joe's know. right there. I know, when we're talking about <laughs> no, the sugary no. times. Just one, one before That's not we, true, by the way. My beautiful wife. <laughs> Office, knows everything so there's so many uh, areas to discuss with you but just while we're dealing with that fame and honey because i saw it last night on, mm. on youtube and it made me laugh and laugh and laugh does the expression <laughs> mug leg <laughs> i knew exactly <laughs> what you were going to say because uh, mrs howie and i were watching last night and this is this is this is you in your heyday this is you in Baywatch, standing having what I have to say, uh, Trevor's a real wooden conversation yeah, with Pamela yeah, yeah. Anderson and Mitch, David Hasselhoff, yeah, yeah. runs past. Did you say him. bad acting? Well, Pamela's is, is you never really wooden? got it. Yeah, no, I'm talking about Pamela. Oh, okay, and Mitch, no, David Hasselhoff runs past and he calls you a mug lair and you have this. And he says, Oh, it's an, you say it's an old Australian expression. I'm like, I've never heard yeah, yeah. him all night. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Mitch. Good luck. Good luck to you, too, mug lair. Muglair, what's that? An Aussie compliment of great respect and admiration. Meaning? Show off. <laughs> Good luck in the race, Trevor. Muglair! <laughs> great admiration and something like that, yeah. <laughs> but that was, that was that in the was, script. That was you at your prime. That, like Baywatch, biggest show in the world, Pamela Anderson, David Hasselhoff, Kelly Slater and bloody Trevor Hendy. I often say... Um, that there was one lady after that that came up to me and said, I actually thought that was really good acting and I thought you're quite good at it. And I say, thanks, Mum, I really appreciate <laughs> it <laughs> because it was really shit. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, but there was – I didn't had no acting technique but it was such an experience and I end up – you would have – I don't know if you saw the whole thing. But I there was watched a couple the whole of, thing. You know, the scene where I give the, the, the motivational speech to Manny, I think He's his name was. the dark-haired guy. And I was like reading it in my head. I'd learned that speech back the front. I didn't know. The idea was that in acting you get the gist of it and then you give you five different versions that you want to give. Okay. I'm like trying to recite the thing back the front. It's like a minute-long minute motivational speech. That's how I started out as a handler for Grant. Kenny, you, <laughs> you know. got to just check it out for anyone listening. Check it out on YouTube. It's it's, it's classic. It's um, yeah, I've forgotten all about it, but it's episode seventeen six. <laughs> <laughs> that was your your hiding fame, I guess. So that that's that was the biggest TV show in the world. I, I went there with the whole Uncle Toby Super Series crew. We actually did a race at Huntington Beach. And did you pitch Mip on uh, Mitch on the line like you did in the actual show? So what happened was they did an actual race, mm. and during the race they jumped the guys into footage at different stage, and we raced. Now in the race itself i got about 12 and um 
It might not have been that bad. It might have been five. But it, I, you know what? I wasn't counting for a point score, so I didn't really bother. And I remember thinking, oh, thank God, because I was so unfit. But um, when we finished the race with all the crowd around, then we did the race again with all the – you know, we just did all the legs and get in and out with all the Baywatch crew in with us, including Gina Lee Nolan, mm. who had raced for the women and made it in and all this sort of stuff. So she's nearly smashing us, right. leading at one stage and all this. But I was, bit, I was a bit hum- – there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of I was a bit chuffed because um, they wrote in the script that I was going to win the race and second place was going to be David Chokichi. Right. And then Mitch was fourth, Guy Andrews third. Right. So so Mitch being David Hasselhoff. Mitch being yeah, Mitch Buchanan, you know, Mitch Buchanan. <laughs> And he was like in the in the show. He's my old mate, and we've you know used to race against him. My old mate Trevor Andy, you know, like this. And g'day, g'day, good as a g'day mates or yeah, something like the that. The old mug lip, which I've never heard of. Yeah, I'm cringing, but um, but apparently he came back from Germany or wherever he was doing a concert tour, and he walked in and he said, "Oh, this is the episode, blah blah." And he read the script and he went, "What? I'm changing this." And he was like, "Oh, they're like, oh no, nah. he wants to win the race." Of course you know? he does. No, but he didn't. He went, changing this. I'm coming second to Trevor, not, ah. not, you know, and I was kind of like, I was like, oh, that was really cool. And when, when we met and everything else, he, he knew all about what I'd done and all that sort of stuff and he researched it and everything else. And so Joe, my wife who's sitting here, was with us at the time and we travelled around for a couple of weeks. We did all the scening, of the, the filming of all the different scenes. We did night rescue scenes under the, you know, the jetty and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And we met some crazy people. I actually met, I actually did a show while I was there on the side as well called uh, The Adventures of the Courageous. And it was a mate and I, it was like real Keystone Cops-ish. And I was like the really cool one that sort everything out. He would just screw everything up the whole time. And we worked with a few different people. But one of them was Lou Fregno, right. the Incredible Hulk. Hulk. So we did an episode with him and drove this little kind of soft top things and he sat up on the roof of the thing <laughs> while he drove it and we went to Gold's Gym and our World Gym or Have whatever. Have you seen Pumping Iron? Uh, yeah, I've seen only half of it. Arnie gets in Lou's head and yeah, yeah, just it's sports motivation yeah. one hundred and one. And he was one of the nicest guys. Right. It was absolutely fascinating to meet him. Muscles. And we went down and worked out on Venice Beach together. Yeah, and of course you did. Hung out for the day and all With that your sort of ponytail. stuff. Yeah, and I was like thinking I was pretty strong <laughs> and everything else. I had my ponytail and oh my god! But it was a crazy experience. We skydived. We did all sorts of things and and went to a, a launch of the Baywatch fragrance launch on the beach. And there was all like supermodels and playboy models and everything there and and it was like oh my god eye poppingly like whoa what's going on and that was that was actually the day that um nikki six was dating what's her name they're married still right and he bought he bought electra no um no, it's the other one. We're getting oh, answers oh, yeah. from Joe now. So anyway. Find a friend. <laughs> Find a friend. But he, he actually brought, um, what's his name down to meet Pamela Anderson? Um, uh, Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee. He brought Motley Tommy Crew. Lee down to have a double date and I was actually standing there with Jonathan Crow and Pamela Anderson talking and we're talking and we had the, we just filmed the bush, the, the campfire scene or the beach fire scene and everything else and we just finished and they were there and I was standing there when he walked over and introduced the two of them and I, I met him as well and, and I'm like, oh, and then she was like, see you and off they went for their, their date and that was it. So, and there's another story to that because she was, yeah, I'm not going to go into that, but she was dating a friend of mine at right. the time. Right, right. <laughs> well, and just, Tommy Lee came and cut his grass. Right. So. Well, and admittedly, Joe is in the room, but as a as a teenager in the 
in the nineties when that show was on, like it, I, like every boy, Pamela Anderson was the perfect woman. Yes, and I got a kiss from her. Remember well, in the well, scene, it was on the well, cheek. Was she perfect, Trip? Uh, she was perfectly nice. Was she beautiful? Yeah, she's beautiful. She was right. an amazing lady and, and Joe's sitting there again and she yeah. would tell you that she was a really lovely lady. She was really, really, really cool and they were all much different to their characters and everything else. Right. And we, really she, lived, we lived in their world for two weeks. We, yeah, well, the rest of the world lived in their world for three years when that yeah. show was at its height and everyone, you know. It, it, it was, that was, I think it was at that particular time they estimated a billion people worldwide yeah. were watching it. They were watching everywhere. it in the Congo. They yeah. were watching it everywhere. Yeah, and they all saw Trev in his big yeah, jocks yeah, running around. Yeah. <laughs> hey, David Chokichi was pretty damn hot. David Chokichi was pretty hot. Jo- so Joe's, just, Joe's just come in with it. And we, I'm still in contact with, with Dave Chokichi as well. Um, but was Kelly in it then? Uh, Kelly was in it pre was, that. Uh, he was who, Jimmy Slade. Jimmy Slade, which the Aussie circus yeah. still calling that. So what, we had met. Selling. We had this crazy interaction where we kept me- meeting each other. Like I'd go to a party and they'd say, oh, Kelly was just here or vice versa. And... Every, this went on for years and years and I had this crazy connection with him but kept missing him by minutes. Right. And uh, I got really sick in Bali when we were over there and all the surfers had come back and we'd run an Ocean Man Ironman race there and all the crew went out except for Joe and I. She was looking after me and I had a staph infection in my leg just passing out and Kelly had come back and was hanging out with the crew and walked straight up to Dwayne and said, where's, where's the big fella? Where's Trev? He's like, oh, he's, he's sick. And, you know, and eventually... We eventually met on the Gold Coast and people made sure we connected with each other because we were meant to. We've been, you know, great yeah. mates ever since and, and helped each other with a lot of different things But um, and surfed a lot of waves together as well. But um, when we got together, we started comparing and he was on the season before and it was right. all these crazy <laughs> experiences, comparison. Baywatch comparisons. And he played, I think, did he play Pamela's boyfriend or something oh, like yeah. that? my word. Um, and all that sort of stuff. Plenty more of Trevor Hendy in a moment. We love your feedback on the Howie game, so please continue to send us messages on social media, Mark Howard 3 on Twitter or Facebook. Tell everyone you know about it so more people can hear the Howie games. Maybe even send us an email, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. Now, if you missed last week's episode of the Howie games, you missed he of the magnificent cover drive, Damien Martin. Marto speaks about all sorts of things, very open, very honest, including how he felt about being dropped from the Australian test side after after one errant shot. Should I, should I have got out? No, of course not. I shouldn't have got out. You know, would I do it differently now? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm 21 or... It's one or, shot. It's one shot. That's what I mean. It's like, it's it's something that... That's the way... If McDermott had come straight in and swung got out and McGrath walked the next ball and he's out, I would have been not out. And then I, the whole side would have been, well, they're all rubbish. <laughs> but my thing was there was five bats and above me who all played, you know, 100 tests. Yep. So... Maybe they shouldn't have got out either that, you know, we're chasing. But that's fine. But I think that was my first time of really understanding that, you know, this can be there's, – there's massive highs and then there's that, you know, massive low that – which come maybe – and that just comes with it. That's, that's the risk of what we do of, you know, at, at any professional sport that there's always going to be a time when that low is going to hit. Check out Damien Martin and the entire back catalogue of the Howie Games on iTunes as always. Now back to Trevor Hendy. You mentioned Kelly Slater and I knew his name would come up and uh, I spent some time overseas, Trev, and I came home and I wanted to get into journalism and the mm. first person that I, uh, the boss at Channel 7, said, all right, story, go, go and do a story. And the first person I sat down with was Kelly Slater. It was the yeah. first person I'd ever done a story. We did it on a on a Channel 7 show and he's, he's always fascinated me. So I don't know if we're going to get it in the first season, but somewhere down the track, uh, maybe... 
Kelly Slater can sit there in the Howie games. And, <laughs> the Howie and games. We, we can go the full circle and I can say to him, I wouldn't be here without you because you were so generous in your interview, which yeah. made a good story, yeah. which made, meant I got a story the next week and yeah. here we are today, a, a middling sports journalist. But I would have never got that opportunity yeah, if, yeah. if Kelly hadn't been yeah. who, who Kelly was. So it was going so... So if you want to give him a call, and <laughs> no, things are going, I'm at the hint, mate. It's all right. I've got on to it. <laughs> things are going so well, um, and as they always do, that's life. Or you're flying, and then bang, you get bit in the ass trip. Mm, yep. How, how did that happen to you? Uh, believing in my own press, so that what led to it was yep. beginning to believe I was bulletproof and be- believed that I could get away with things that were out of ethics for me. And over a period of time, what that happened is it eats away at you on the inside and. For me, I began to feel like as if uh, I just was I just felt off and not true to myself. But how it manifested was shoulder injury, hip injury, uh, collapsed arch. I, I felt like an aching feeling the whole time. I had the best physios, the best um, sports massage, the best sports psych. You know, like I had all crazy people working with me, really good people, the best of the Western world mm. working with me, and I had this. Did, little did I know because it felt normal I'd been aching for years so I would ice my shoulders basically every day I'd have anti-inflammatories constantly um, uh, I'd be on anti- on and off antibiotics because we're always pushing the scope because you do so many different legs swim, ski, board, run one set of muscles are recovering and you can hammer the other set so you can cross train th- and kill yourself you know okay. literally had so all the guys would get sick all the time and eventually by my, ma- my manager got sent along to this guy who's a, a wonderful chiropractor, his name Keith Maitland. And incidentally, I've just started seeing him again after 20 years. Um, but he really, I stood in front of him one day and I walked in there and he actually said to me, well, two main issues that I, you know, can see with you. And so I'm, I'm stuffed. I'm like this shoulder's hammered and everything else and all the best Western stuff hasn't worked. And he says, two main things I see. One is that you've got some allergies. He said, I'm not sure what, but I'm looking at your eyes. You've got some intolerances. I suspect dairy, you know, and it's maybe some other things. And your body's quite toxic, so we're going to have to clean that up. And he says, number two is you've got some emotional issues sitting down there, and particularly um, some anger issues. And I'm smiling like I do every day. And he's like, this guy's lined me up. I've just met him, and he's telling me this. And I'm thinking... Anger issues, anger issues. I'll who, give you anger. <laughs> who does this guy think he is? You know, like, and I'm thinking that on the inside, and on the outside, I'm going, oh, okay, you know, like this. And on the inside, I'm, I want to kill him, and I'm thinking about my manager. What did he send me to him for? Who's this guy? And you said it so beautifully before. Is everybody in my life was saying yes, 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 yes? And this one man who was wise enough and impactful enough was certain enough about what he was saying to say no. And he said to me this. He goes, your body is telling me, you, you know, you've won three world titles. Your body is telling me that you won't win another world title unless you sort this out. Mm. So it literally it's it's collapsing, it's falling apart. This is your make or break time. And so I'm basically wanting to kill him. I wanted to, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm three times world champion on the inside. And I'm actually noticing these thoughts thinking, where's this coming from? There's a scene in the Matrix number three or whatever where he gets revealed that it's a big thing and, mm. he, and all the other versions of Neo start going, that's rubbish, you know, and all this. <laughs> it's like that feeling. It's like this part of me just fired up. Oh, that's, you know, but I'm still smiling looking at him. And so this is, it's a critical story and it set up a lot of things because, um, I was, I was hammered. Relationship was dying, dead, basically fighting, 
you know, struggling, couldn't understand, trying. There was, there was a lot of love at the base of it, but a lot of crushed, you know, things that had gone on over a long period of time and diff- distance and separation and I'm becoming a bit more aloof and all this sort of stuff. And so many, many levels where I'm not winning and yet I'm still winning. And all I do is point to the trophy cabinet. I'm, yeah, I'm not winning. Look over there, you know, which is a great diversion and really my was killing me. So anyway, he says no and he tells me that. And and I he goes, why don't you come back tomorrow and we'll do some work on this and if you want, bring some bring some foods in samples and we'll start that and we'll work through these issues and everything else. And he said to me, with the anger stuff, he goes, I have, and he's just looking at me and he says, I have a sense it's like a father figure, but it doesn't feel like it's your father. Have you got another strong father figure that something's happened? I'm like, oh, my uncle it just passed away two months before that and... And he was like my second dad. He used to live with us, literally. He was the uncle that taught me how to swear. He was the dad that taught me how to swear. And the other one taught me how to be polite and open the door for women, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that taught me how to just not care, you know. So he'd passed away. He died in an accident. And and he said, I said, oh, my uncle. And he just died a couple of months ago. And he said, yeah, well... And he goes, but I'm, I said, I'm not angry about that. I'm sad. And he goes, no, no, you're angry too. He says, the feeling like, my feeling is that he's left you and you're angry that he left you. And I went, oh. And he goes, I want you to go away and write a letter to him and just post it in the rubbish bin, but everything you want to say and be, get it off your chest. This is the first time I'd actually been exposed to what? Emotions and thoughts and feelings? I thought win, see race, win race, <laughs> you know, take claim check and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and so I literally, I'm angry at him can't believe he's told me this about my uncle and then he has the hide to tell me come back tomorrow bring some food samples and if you want to work away and I find myself nodding going okay I'll see you tomorrow right and I walk out and I get in the car and I drive down the road I drive past where my house is now and I literally just it's amazing I can point to it from our house and I drive up over Burley Hill and I'm up and I'm fuming da, 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 da. and then I get on Burley Hill and I go hang on a second my shoulder's not aching my hip's not aching my foot's not aching, I'm not aching, I feel amazing. And I'm like, but he didn't do anything to me. And then this little voice came in really, really clearly. Um, and it was my higher self or whatever else, it was clear as day, said, he told you the truth. And I literally like was like my life just opened up and it was like the one person that was trying to tell me, the deck of cards spread to 3D and I could see everything was trying to tell me for a long time, but I was just shutting it off. So I literally could not believe and I wanted to go back partly to find out how does this guy do that? What is he, is he like a witch doctor? Like that was amazing. I couldn't believe how good I felt from just the truth. Know the truth and the truth shall Mm. set you free. You know, I just felt this amazing release of energy and I'm like, I haven't felt like this for six or seven years. I felt like a kid again. I had, I'd lost all this baggage and this energy and this, and the, particularly the aching blew me away. And then another part of me wanted to go back and prove him wrong. You know, so that was, I was the, a, Man so that was the start of the journey. That was the fall. Uh, I'd already fallen. There was things that broken up with the partner. I'd, all this sort of stuff had happened. But I was still pointing to my trophy cabinet. And then that was the realisation that my body was collapsing. I couldn't hide it. You can hide it from the family. You can hide it, but you can't hide it from yourself. And, and so literally um, I drove back there with an open mind and a little part of me the double-edged sword, wanting to prove at some stage, get a bit of one-upsmanship on him and prove that he's got no right to speak to me like that. So in other words, I went back with the fascination of who we are really and with the ego still intact trying to work out how it can stay alive. And uh, I literally went on a journey with him and he set me on off to some courses and things like that, ultimately that 
And that was a bigger turning point where I realised a lot of things about the baggage I was carrying around and some blame and anger and resentment and things like that. And I just I did an amazing process and literally, it's a long story short, but I literally went into a weekend seminar with full-blown glandular fever and full blood tests and everything, doctor that I'd always seen. And I went on this course that I'd been told about and I actually freed, Joe was on it with me and we freed out so much baggage about different things. And I got to the end of the course and I'd released all this emotion and everything else. And then I actually had the realization of when the glandular fever thought had started. And it sounds crazy, but I actually um, I felt all this crazy vibration and tingling and I felt it leave me. And I went back the next day, got a blood test, went back into the same doctor and he said, there must be some mistake because firstly, you've got no symptoms whatsoever five days after full-blown glandular fever. And not only that, but this blood test says that not only do you not have glandular fever, it says you've never had it. <laughs> so it's hard to turn around from that point and go back to mm. taking a pill. You know, not not I never took pills, but I never did drugs. But not, you know, it's hard to go yeah, back to actually true. taking something to take to mask a pain. It's hard to go back to those sort of things when you realise that we have the capacity inside of us to change anything if we get the right support. You know, and that's pretty hard to find, but in today's world but that was that was the turning point and that's what launched me and it also launched uh, some challenging times too because I was built on being the Iron Man and I was built on motivation and positivity and everything else and now I'm starting to discover love and awareness and clarity and openness and god our baggage actually sets up our whole environment and, and there's really no perpetrators most of them are just the victim of someone else and they've turned into the perpetrator you know and so it's a it's a pretty been a crazy ride since you know, but I, in a lot of ways, um, the compassion that I was shown and the care that I was given is what I've returned to other people and travel around helping them, you know, change their lives for the better by saying it's okay. Talk to me about it. And I, I've, I don't know what it's like to live with someone like that. I, I've never seen anyone that can um, talk to people and cut through to them as you have. And I guess the thing that I've always loved about you is you're the most free-spirited person I know and I look at myself and think, oh, geez, there's part of me that's wanting to go right down that track and <laughs> yeah. can you do that? And there's, there's, a, there's a hippie part in me there yeah, and, I, yeah, and yeah. I see that 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 is you. Mm. Sometimes you just seem so free mm. and I often wonder with people that are that completely free with modern society, and this is a, yeah, it's a tricky one to ask, but money. Like mm. You're such a free-spirited person and you were, I presume, in, mm. in your heyday, you would have had money coming out of your budgie smugglers, you know. You, you, you were Australia's <laughs> yeah. most high-profile athlete. Uh, and then things didn't go well with you for money. Like how does that whole process happen where, you, where you've got mm. it all and then you, you lost it all? I think you went bankrupt yep. At, yep. at one point. Yep. Um, Year 2000. Yep. Which is a, you know, as, as two mates, it's a hard thing to even bring up. But yeah. you're this free-spirited cat and free-spirited people often have a different view of money and what it's worth and if it is worth anything and it's a lot further down the list yeah yeah than the bloke going to his office nine to five i guess yeah it's funny there's a lot of stigmas in life unspoken stigmas yeah one of which you just pointed out is bankruptcy which is why it's so uncomfortable yeah. for you to say but i'm so free around yes. it's not funny we could talk yeah. about it to the cows come home it's it's it was an amazing experience and it was an amazing lesson it taught me so much but what happened trev when you did have the big banks and you had yep. Joe and I don't know, do you, do you put your pin card in one day and it just says there's not any money in there? No, no. It was more, it was more, uh, when I went bankrupt, you're talking yeah. about? No, it was more, um, 
very smart financial advice. Right. That, that wasn't that so smart. says, well, you know, when you're it's live by the sword, die by the sword. So when I'm living a life where I'm getting away with things that the world goes, it's okay. <laughs> Have some. <laughs> you know, but it's out of ethics for me. Well, it's funny when an accountant says to you, it's okay, we'll put the money over there. It's okay, you've got this as a deduction. It's okay, we'll buy a cherry farm that doesn't exist. Or, you know, you know, you know, or did exist, but, you know, or we'll invest in movies and you get this tax deduction and everything else. And so live by the sword, die by the sword. Something will catch up with you. So I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, great. Whatever leaves it so it's not a problem for me. Yeah, okay. What, I don't have to deal with it. Great. Does this leave money in my pocket? Can I go to Hawaii this week? Yeah, off you go. Oh, yeah, great, mate. Thanks. So yes, yes, yes. I just want to hear yes. You're telling See, me this yes. this is what I mean about the free spirit and and how money comes and goes. That's yeah. exactly what I was talking well, about. Well, this is before I'm free spirit. This is like when I'm still Right, you're still Iron Man Trev. Yeah, yeah, no, right. no. So I the, the bankruptcy was Iron Man Trev. So the free spirit was what cleared it all up. Had to be a free spirit. You had no money left. Yeah, well, yeah, I had to live on noodles. <laughs> but um, but what happened was I, I literally all of a sudden there was, you know, retrospective legislation because the PM at the time wanted to go after Packer and a few others that were doing the same schemes. And I was like, yeah, they're great schemes. You know, they just it allows you to not pay the tax. You just put it off and you defer it. Okay. It was all by the letter, but it was the same little bit. Yeah, you can do it when ethically, no, you're not really contributing. You're not part of you know, the flow of society and everything else. And so I, I didn't have major things in that. Well, we weren't tax cheating. We just had these things that were questionable and they retrospectively legislated over a three-year period. All of a sudden had – I'd switched to kayaking. I'd lost all the Ironman sponsors and I wanted to race for Australia at the Olympics. Yeah, 2000, you know? home Olympics. You didn't, I'd gone from a giant chunk of money earning to a moderate amount, which is fine. I'm all good. But I'm starting to shift and, and change my life. I'm just starting to shift and try different things. And all of a sudden I get like a $700,000 bill for stuff that, and I'm not even close to earning that in the next right. five years. You know, like it's it became a um, uh-oh and knocking on the door, you know. So I, there was not one business or one person, a couple of credit cards in the tax office was what I had to go bankrupt for and and clear it up, you know. So it was a crazy lesson. Scary? Yeah, at the time it totally freaked me out because it had to come through the stigma I had to come through, I've let the world down, I've let everybody down, I've let my dad down, I haven't been a strong provider and all this sort of stuff and how am I going to find what's next? And and then I had a really amazing guy that came to me and said, no, no, it, it's actually part of the thing is that it gives you a chance to start again. You know, what it's basically doing is saying, well, we don't want to kill you over this, you know, take a bite, go back. When you do get yourself back on your feet, 50% of your income for a period of time is going to pay back that stuff. So you still pay for it along the way. Yeah. But the scary thing was that I was letting the world down and I it was the most profound thing. I, I did interviews with people on TV, you know, um, um, John Laws and people like that at the so time. So you did the full I, celebrity... I went on the front foot and just went, this is going to pop up. So I went on the front foot and announced it and just said, you know, I'm learning stuff, so why don't I share what I learned? And I just went and was really, really honest. And I remember having crazy experiences while I was telling that truth to John Laws where I'm like having these really trippy experiences like I'm letting go of so much baggage and so much stress and so much worry just being able to tell. So the end result wasn't shame and embarrassment. The end result was freedom and being able to hold my head high and go, I took took my licks and I, you know, I learnt from it and I got back up and I... I never really cheated anybody, but I was cheating the system that little that little bit. I was just, you know, 
not cheating it. I was actually what you, manipulating. Well, doing it in your favour. I was doing what someone else told me you're allowed to do. Good financial advice, yeah. you know. There's a lot of that out there, Trevor. But really, yeah. But really, what I was advice. doing. So I, I wasn't making up the advice, but what I was doing was I was going with it because I was already out of ethics anyway. So that was my my cop was come on, mate, wake up. You, you're just looking for yeses all the time. You need some more noes. If there was one thing, Trev. Of, of everything and it's a strange thing to say but if there was one thing that I look at you doing I think I wish I could do that and it'll be an insignificant thing to you but it fascinates me um, <laughs> and I've seen you do it and I've seen you do it confidently and I've seen clips of you doing it is getting out when the surf's big yeah, like yeah. big and we've just uh, yeah, we're sitting here now in Victoria in uh, in May and there's just been a three days of big surf mm. not enormous surf but big surf and still you know I'd I get out there and it scares the shit out of me. Um, and, and, you know, you, you sat on the beach with me one day at Bondi and you're like, okay, you've got to learn to hold your breath and that'll give you more confidence and mm. stuff like that. Tell me about being out in, in big surf. Well, the first, the obvious question that everyone asks in this situation and your description and the average punter will be a little bit different. What, what's the biggest waves you've been out in, Trev? In, oh. in something that people can understand. Let, let's talk telegraph poles. And a telegraph pole is a very high thing. Yeah, bigger because than it, a telegraph pole, yeah. Bigger yeah. than a telegraph. Because there's, there's, when, you, when you say six to eight foot, pe- people don't understand it. Wait, let's talk, actually, something you explain well is stories of a building. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Of a typical, an apartment block. What, yeah. what, what balcony are we sitting on? Uh, well, it's normally about eight foot per story, isn't it? Yeah, but your eight foot and my eight foot are very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's sort of yeah, what yeah. I mean. So, so I don't know, maybe um, it's a funny thing because 15 years ago when I was really – 15, 12, 10, 8 years ago when I was really chasing a lot of big waves, yeah. they were Australian, they were Southern Ocean big waves, you know, they were – Cold waves, well, you, well, But also up in Queensland and all that sort of stuff. It was just – it was Southern Hemisphere big waves, okay. you know, and it wasn't like the Hawaiian stuff and everything else. And um, – there's guys that would spend their whole season going to Hawaii to ride big waves, and that was always our series. We never went to Hawaii during the big swell season because even though that's what competing. I loved because yep. we were competing. And um, so eventually um, I kind of got more into it, and Kelly was one of my tow partners and Paul Jackson, a couple other people that, you know, good guys that just good watermen, you know, and you feel really safe with them and they feel safe with you. and. And you get someone that's had, they've been exposed to that for a long time. And you go out on a jet ski and you start towing around and you find bigger and better waves or even hollow, really dangerous waves and really fun stuff. And You've got to take us to the apartment block, Trev. So yeah, I'll, I'll get there. So so um, there's probably about a f- half a dozen different surfs where I've got waves that maybe, maybe they're... Um, you know, forty-five foot faces or something like that. So it's, what's that? It's like eight, six, six, <laughs> six <laughs> floors. Huge. That's what it is. We're talking seven, seven, eight, six, eight. We're talking six or seven-story apartment six, yeah. blocks chasing you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of that sort of height. Maybe five and a half, six floors. But um, there's this crazy feeling. The easiest way I can say it is, you know, when you go from four foot to five foot. Yeah. And it's rattly. Yep. But and you get that wave and you feel so good, and then five foot next time's a bit easier, and then it's six foot, you know, and then the odd eight foot set comes through, and you and you you deal with it, you go around it, and then you take one, and you stay on the shoulder, but then you catch another one and you're getting closer. So you progress. You absolutely 100% progress. So you look at people and you go, oh, I could never do that, and it's if you had the passion and the bent for it, and your your lifestyle revolved around the people 
and the and the ocean and the waves and the proximity to do it, what ends up happening is you you become that person that's really calm in those situations. So once again, it sounds like, oh, it's amazing, da la. But I always said to you, like I'd say, yeah. no, that's just one thing at a time, one thing at a time. And but f- so for me, if I went from and so let's say a, a, a 30 foot face, 30 foot high face, we would call a 15 foot wave. Yeah. It's just, it's just a size thing. Like, yeah. You know, why they, oh, it's a 15 footer. It's a cool thing too. Cause the, the yeah. old Hawaiians try and yeah, underestimate, underestimate the size. And then when, you pick it up yourself. Yeah. And like it's a, yeah, it's 15 foot. No, it's not clearly 30 foot. Well, not in my terms. Yeah, it's you know, an like apartment it's, block you chasing you across the reef at the end of the you day. Know, but it's a size. It's not, it's not a measurement. It's just a size. Like it's 15 foot. Yeah. It became this weird size thing. Now they measure by the face. Mm. So if it's 55 foot face, they go, it's 55 foot. Where once upon a time we'd say, oh, it's 25 foot plus. Yep. You know, so it's kind of funny. You want you ask people, well, is that a face or the wave, yeah. you know? But, um, and now guys are surfing up to 75, touching on 80 feet. Can you picture that in your mind? Can you oh, picture yeah. being in yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I can. Certain waves I can. So certain waves I'm like, not so much. But you know what I don't like? I can't, I would not want to be there with, 15 other jet skis. No. 30 other crews or whatever else and people going crazy. I'd like to be there with my mates and take off on the shoulder a couple of times, let go and then work your way into the thing. And at that stage, no problems at all. I'd I'd love to do that. But talk about that, you know, Jaws, yeah, no problems. Or even Cortez Bank or, you know, those waves. Um, Nazari in Portugal that just spits onto the ledge in front of it. In front of the... Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't see the you know it, it peaks up and turns into a crazy peak and then goes all directions and you, you know your jet ski guy gets you get this great photo and then your jet ski guy gets killed and you know and everyone goes. There was those pictures last a couple of years ago of someone getting CPR. CPR. On the beach. Yeah, Gabe, Gabe. What's her name? The girl. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so Trev, when you're in that situation, because to me, in the in the pissy little waves I surf, it's not the taking off on the waves that's frightened me, it's when the closeout set lands in front of you mm. and there's that wall of water and all of a sudden you, you have no control of your body. We're talking about two different sorts of surfing too. The, when when it gets big, big, you're out there on the jet ski with your mate and you toe into the wave and he comes and picks you up most of the time. So you're not getting a wave on Occasionally the Occasionally you get flogged in the tube or on the wave and then you get the next wave on the head. But at that stage you've got a life jacket on, you can dink down, you can come up, if that's your choice. And you've already trained to hold your breath for a long period of time. How so long? Five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah, but you don't hold your breath for five minutes when you go under a wave. Well, when you, you're getting tossed so around. to expel it. Well, when your adrenaline's going crazy, and <laughs> I can feel the fear. When yeah, your adrenaline's is, going is. crazy and you're getting tossed around, a five-minute still static breath hold turns into about you'd be doing really well if you got a minute 30 out of yourself yeah. when you're really getting tossed around. Have you been held under for a no, period I've of been, time like I've that? I've been maybe three waves. Right. And so three waves and a decent swell might be like 40, 40 sec, 45 seconds or something. And is fear creeping into you at that point or not? Not at that stage it wasn't because I was really prepared. My buddy and I did a whole stack of rock running. Right. And what's crazy is it's not how long you hold your breath for. You're actually not holding your breath anymore. So think about holding your breath. I'm holding breath. No, it's not. Actually, you take a breath in, you leave it in there, and you close your mouth and you relax. That's that's what it really ultimately ends up becoming. So if you can do that for four or five minutes, if you can do it for, for two and a half to three minutes, all of a sudden a two-wave hold down that lasts 20 seconds is nothing. Only because what happens to do it for, for longer than about two and a half minutes, you have to get past your mind. 
when you get up around three, three and a half minutes, and you can do it. You can you, if you did. I give you an exercise, and you did it for two weeks on your bed of a night time. You'll get up to three and a half minutes, no problems. Right. So just doing it each night, right? Because what happens is it expands pretty quickly. You learn how to relax. The problem's not your breath. The problem is your mind. So to train to get to that level, you have to notice your mind. And when you get past your mind, you go, there's my mind. Oh, geez, that thing's causing me trouble. Mm. And then you go for another minute and it's blissful and it's beautiful. And you're like, what? (laughs) Where did that come from? My mind was telling me I'm going to die in 10 seconds, but it's not the truth. So you begin to know your mind is full of crap. So it's a wonderful spiritual experience too because you go, I wonder what else it's lying to me about, mm. you know, scared of that relationship situation or whatever. No, you're probably going to live. No, we're going to die, you know. So what happens is if, when you're trained to do that and next time, and I remember this time I did it, I got tumbled by about an 8 to 10-foot wave, 20-foot face, barrelly, violent. I'm getting tumbled around and I'm while I'm rolling around, I'm laughing. I'm doing cartwheels under the water. Of course you were. And I'm laughing. But this is this was even a change for me. Like I always look like I had it completely sus. This is like a, a change for me. I'm rolling around and I get so tossed around. I'm going, oh, oh, if I come up now, I'm in the second wave. So I just kind of stay down. I wasn't wearing a life jacket or anything. Stay down. And next wave, boom, rolls over, you know. Oh, and it hits me again, rolls around. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Because I know... There's only one thing I have to do and not believe anything my mind says. Because I'm rotating around and violently down for 25 seconds, I can hold my breath for four plus minutes. Like, what's the deal? So you've, you've broken the mind's hold on you. And what happens, I think that was a two or three-wave hold down that one, but I literally it was like a aha. And I came up and Jacko, my driver on that day, he, he came up next to me and he went, you all right? And I went... Oh, my God, that was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds ridiculous, but it's I not. It's just your, it's, it's you without your mind. So w- w- when it works, yep. when you get towed in to yep. a big, big, yeah, yeah. big wave and you ask this to Formula One drivers what it's like driving the car and they can't explain it. They, mm. they just, well, it, you know, because to them it's not that fast. But can you explain to people that will never do it, that watch those clips because it's such a big thing now, the XXL yeah. Awards and yeah. you know, 50 grand for the biggest way. Is it a feeling of mastery or power or joy or what is it when you're on that wave and you know, I'm dialed in here, I'm going to make this and this wave is freaking huge and I'm... What are you? Are You're you, making you... me miss toe surfing. I'm thinking, right, oh. I've done it for a while. <laughs> you, you know what it is, mate? It's awe. It's awe. a sense of awe. What a great So word. what happens is you don't actually feel like you're incredible. You feel like the whole thing is incredible. It's like you're humbled but powerful at the same time. It's a real yin and yang experience. Talk about middle ground. It's you are literally... You're not scared because you've overcome the fear to take that wave in the first place. You may be a bit apprehensive. You may be a bit tense. But when to push yourself into the right into the, the impact zone and do it, to take off and to let go, you've decided. And then it just something just lets go because you've already said, well, I'm doing it. You've made the choice. So I'll explain one for you. It was pro- these, are the, these are the greatest physical experience I've ever had in my life. They pale in comparison to being in love and everything else. But they are... You're a bit like you're in love with the world at this moment. It was a, it was 12 foot, ridiculously perfect offshore at the back of the Gold Coast on a, on a, uh, on a bommie of sand at the back of Stratty Bommie, and I got towed in by Nathan Meyer, who was a World Ironman champion, Phil Clayton and Brett Tyke in our duck that we had this <laughs> th- thunder duck. Both two two World Ironman champions in amongst them, and they're like frothing young kids, and I was their coach. 
and they tow me in and there's this wave screaming in this big one and we're on our way back out and I'm holding on this speeding up and it's what you call whipping in from behind. It's called backdooring the wave. So the wave's going to peel off along a sandbank and instead of me starting where the wave's about to break, I'm starting from 100 metres behind it going about 60 k's an hour, holding on and they turn, they're going along the wave and then they turn over the back and I'm holding on and I, like I go flying across the face. So as the wave reaches the sandbank, it's a 25-foot face. And as it reaches the sandbank and lurches and yawns, I'm actually coming into the back of it at full speed thinking, what have I done? I'm too deep. I'm too deep. This is ridiculous. Oh, my God. And as I come into the back of the barrel, the boys, because they've turned around the back, they've now got our, our 50 horsepower, goes 100 kilometre hour duck, and they're going as fast as they can along the back of the wave to get over on the shoulder to come out and see what happens. <laughs> so they're going flat out. I pulled in, so in the tube and I got inside and you learn how to hold the line, five foot, six foot. It's now 12 foot and I'm doing the same thing. I'm on a tow board, it's a tighter board and I'm holding the line down the line and I'm, I can only explain it like I was in for about 15 seconds. Like in the barrel. Kira length barrel. Wow. And it felt like 40 seconds because everything slows down and I could feel every yawn of the wave and every (sighs) noise was just unbelievable and I'm in this spot in the middle of it. The wave's tearing, it would tear you to pieces, but I'm in the centre. It's like the centre of the cyclone. I'm in the centre right really deep. And all I kept thinking was, I cannot believe how deep I am. Like I could see the lip hitting the water so far up in front of me. It wasn't funny, but because it's so big and so wide, I'm up in this pocket way back in the corner. And when a barrel peels along, it spits. It sucks all the water and it spits out. So it spat and I couldn't see anything. And when the, the, it's really like violently breathed out. And when it finished spitting, I'm like, whoa, and then it clears and I'm still exactly the same depth in the barrel. And I went along again and it spat again. Again. And (laughs) went, whoa, and I came and I'm still in the barrel. And then I'm in the barrel and I'm starting to creep towards the end. I'm thinking, because all I was thinking was I'll go as long as I can. This is unbelievable. And as I'm creeping at getting closer to the eye of the tube, the boys actually pull over the shoulder and start looking in. And they're, because they're looking for this last couple of hundred metres, he's died. This thing's gone so fast. Pick up the pieces. Well, let's get on the shoulder in case. And as they pull over, they're, they're looking in the tube and they're going, they're screaming and they're like a hundred metres away from me out on the shoulder. And I'm still in it and it goes and goes and goes. And then I came out and I'm standing in the eye of it for like another 15 seconds. It just, it was the longest time I'm standing in this thing, but it was like 15 plus seconds. We're, we're trying to work it out and super, super deep. I came out and it was more like this humbling, incredible experience. What As I finally came out and went over the shoulder, they were on the shoulder of the duck. I came out and they turned the wrong way and I literally ran into them, <laughs> into the side of them, fell into the boat on my back <laughs> and then the three of them jumped on top of me screaming, going, oh, God. It was like the four of us got the tube, you know. And what the crazy thing about that story was I'd actually decided to not surf that swell because I was going to help run one of those seminars that helped me in the first place. Right. And the boys went, we go and surf. And I went, it's all right, I'm going to help. So I became one of the organisers of the seminar. And all of a sudden, as I did that, I was willing to do this for other people, a much, much bigger picture than going out and chasing waves. It was like, how can you help other people? And... 
I literally got a few things done and then someone said, hey, I've got this covered, I've got that covered. I was the logistical supervisor. I've got this covered, that covered. Um, we probably don't need to be back till four o'clock now. And I'm like, no way. And I ring the boys and they go, oh, we had a little fuel problem. We're at the boat ramp now. So I bolted straight there and I had this two-hour surf, this two-hour window that I got the two best waves I've ever surfed in my life. I got two exactly like that and both times with the boys on the shoulder. And so the experience was... It's like it's it's not like it's a reward for something. It's like you you you're living in the moment, and that allows you to tap into a, a crazy experience of being in the moment that you just never ever forget. But when you're inside of it, it feels like you're inside of the belly of a beast. Wow! But it's peaceful. It's so violent around the outside of you, but it's it's peaceful. And when you come out, you feel like I don't know, I can't explain it. It's like so humbled, like you want to cry. Like I came out of the first wave and I went, actually I came out of the second wave and I went, I don't ever want to catch another wave like that. I, I don't want to be, that was that was so almost scary. Like I can't believe, you know, that could never happen like that again. Like I, I was like, oh, I don't want another one like that. I don't want to go to the next level. It was that kind of feeling of humility. And I, I remember Laird Hamilton had the same experience when he surfed that wave at Chopu, mm. which was bigger mm. than what I surfed and it was meaner and he'd stepped over another line altogether. But And there's a funny little connection with him because when we first started toe surfing secretly in our duck, Next minute, pictures came back of them toe surfing in Hawaii before anyone else. I'm like, oh, we've been doing the same. We had the same <laughs> idea at the same time. But he came out of this barrel at Chopu and got in and he, he felt like that's it. He didn't want to – it was almost like he didn't want to do it anymore. It was the ultimate. It was the ultimate. He's like, that's what he came to do. And I felt like that on that day. That was me going as far as I needed to go surfing and everything's been a bonus since. Um, and I've kind of tried to take that experience into life and help other people have that same experience in life. Now, Joe's got dinner at reservations. So yes. I've only got a couple more questions for you. Um, so answer them in a short manner, Trevor, and okay. I'll let you get out of here. Um, you, you talked about Kelly Slater, I guess, now. You know, if you, if you as a sports fan, play golf with Tiger Woods, mm. shoot buckets with Jordan have a kick of the soccer ball with Ronaldo, surf with Kelly Slater. That's, you know, that's sort of four bucket lists for a lot of people out there. Yep. You, you know, you, you know Kelly and you, you've surfed so many times with him in so many places. Why? What, to me, he, he's the best athlete of my mm, life because mm. he's just dominated his sport and people agree or disagree with that. Mm. What? Why is he so good? Why is Kelly Slater, an 11-time world champion, that's still taking his sport in new directions after 23 years at the top level? Um. If I go surfing with Kelly, it's like going surfing with you. We've surfed together and we had a lot of fun. Hey? Yeah, and absolutely. And we bounce around. It's two mates having a crazy experience, whether it was Hooting. Wind, windblown. When we, where did we surf that time? Yeah, um, with Bales on the Goldie. Uh, in the Goldie, that's right. Yeah. And it was windblown and we had a ball. Yeah, And yeah, we're yeah. bouncing off each other. And it's two mates connecting. So it's exactly the same experience. The human being who loves what he does and he has a wonderful saying, they ask him, who's the best surfer in the world? And he says, the best surfer in the world is the one having the most fun. <laughs> you know, and so is that you? And he goes, well, some days maybe it is, but probably someone else, you know. And I love that about him and that in some ways answers the question, you know, why is he so good? Does. Because he doesn't take himself so seriously, which is, you know, he gets caught in it a bit like everyone. He's like, oh, moments where – and he's like, oh, hang on, you know, and lets it go. And that hit, that's how he won. He won world title number seven and released a video and he called it Letting Go. Mm. 
He won world title number eight, released a video and called it For the Love. Mm. You know, and then he won nine, ten and eleven, you know. Um, so, and he stopped doing videos on himself at that stage, so it evolved <laughs> even more, you know. Um, but so why is he so good? I think because he's doing what he loves, he's passionate about. I think of you, you the way you treat people and the way you look after people and when I've worked with you, you, you get the best out of people all the time. You do what you love. You change people's world when you interview them because whether you've got two minutes or three minutes, they walk away going, nah, I feel better for that experience. A lot of people get ripped apart and, and feel like they're pu- pulled to pillar to post. You see every person as the person. You know, and so why why are you so good at that? Why have you decided you want to speak to people for longer and create yeah. Howie games? You know, yeah, because that's who you are. Yeah, that's what Thank you're you. about. That's that's Cal. That's the same experience as anybody else. He's 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 bigger than surfing. He's more about people. He's more about the world, the planet. If you follow him on anything, you'll mm. see that all he ever talks about is how off track we are and everything else and, and and why he changed sponsors and everything else because he wanted to align and he wanted to sustainably create clothing and everything else that made people feel good in their own skin. You know, really, really cool things that he's gone towards because he's becoming more himself every step of the way and every day that he does was like me on the line for that Ironman race all those years <laughs> ago was that when you don't need to win it and you're on the line with the people you love, more often than not you go, oh, I'm on the lead wave. Oh, should I win it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. You know, you're doing what you love and it inspires people because you're letting go. That's more about it. It's a, probably a surprising no, answer, but but that's more about it. He's, he's like every other person in the world. He's got loves and passions and, and it, you know, he's another guy that I love being around like I do so many people, you know. You know, these days I mix with a lot of interesting characters that I met all around the place and because I help them, they open right up and mm. we become friends on very deep levels and you just realise exactly the same as the mum that I'm doing a session with or the dad that's got his small business or the guy that's worth 500 million, you know, with his business. They're all the same. We're, we're all exactly the same. We've got the same challenges, the same stuff, and we've all got our own little unique passion that we need to follow. I, I, I like to finish the Howie Games with um, you You met both my kids, Sky, who would have been, I reckon, three the last time you saw her. She's now six. And uh, Mac, who... When you would have seen Matt. him, he sat in the commentary box <laughs> with you. He would have been seven months seven old. Months. I've got a picture. Six months, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. in nappies. So for some reason, Trev, a year ago, he woke up and said, my name's no longer Mac. It's the big penguin. <laughs> and that's the only thing you'll answer to. So we normally finish the Howie games by you answer a question from the pickle, which is Skyzy yes, or yeah. the big penguin. Okay, who have big, I got? You've got the big penguin. Okay. Um, and he said, okay, tell me a little bit about Can Trev. I tell you about Bailey really quickly? Yes, My of course you young, can. youngest son. Of course you can. Yeah. That he told us at one stage, he said, um, I'm no longer Bailey. I'm now named Elvis. I don't mind it. You know, and he, from then on he wanted to be Elvis. So <laughs> I don't mind it. <laughs> Joe's laughing over there. But All right. Okay, I, so the big penguin. The big penguin. So it. I told him a bit about you and he came up with a, a question that really made me laugh and you'll understand why because I've got a little story to relate to it. But uh, here we go. This is the big penguin. Hi, Trev. Big penguins here. Do you like going fishing? Oh. The big penguin. I'm going to get him to ask it again in case you missed it. Hi, Trev. Big penguins here. Do you like going fishing? <laughs> Do you like going fishing? Because okay. b- b- before you answer this, we finished an Ironman event 
<laughs> on the Goldie? On the Goldie? And <laughs> no, had, no, it was New, Newcastle. Newcastle. You had to take the jet, the jet ski, ski around back, back the into river. Newcastle Harbour. Yeah. And you jumped off the jet ski and you'd seen a fish in the water. <laughs> you had no fishing equipment. You leapt overboard like the Iron Man that you are, grabbed this fish out of the ocean and fed the whole bloody crew with it, Triv. It was about a 15-pound cod, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> the big penguin doesn't know that, so he's asked you a question. I actually got emotional when I heard the question. Um, firstly, the sound of your beautiful son. <laughs> Thanks, you know, mate. And the theme of our talk today was what's inside of us when we're kids yeah. you know, and how and, and, and insanely connected we are and the day that I cried for the whales without any whales being there, but I didn't even know where we were. And when we're kids and we haven't, our heads haven't got involved. We have crazy, crazy intuition. We're pretty amazing. And the big penguin <laughs> asked a very deep question for me because as you know that day, I brought that fish back and we cooked it up and I did a sashimi and I, I then prepared the whole thing and fed the whole crew. The whole crew, 15 people. And I was literally driving along on the jet ski and I saw a flash and I went, that fish, it looked like something, had, like it had been attacked by something and it was swimming away. But it was a little bit wonky. It had lost its direction. And I thought I saw an opening and I dived down and I cornered it and pulled <laughs> it up. And my, my buddy who's, you know, um, Craig Shelton of the other jet ski driver, he's like, what's he doing? He comes back around and I come out of the water with this giant blue cod <laughs> and wrestle it into the thing and took it home and, and, and fed all of us. You know, we had it was amazing, wasn't it? It was, it was. really beautiful fish yeah, and everyone was blown away and we made homemade chips and everything else. But that's a little bit about my dad took me and my Uncle Jack took me fishing from from the age of the big penguin onwards. And we travelled around Australia and we fed the family fishing. I used to be sent out to the river and I would get the food and I'd bring it back. And my mum, that would be the first time I felt like as if I was equal to my dad. Cool. I would provide for him. So I felt like fishing was my first connection to being of value. The first connection of being, I felt like a man at four or five years old when I could catch a fish. And so fishing is something I still do and teach the kids and we go and we go on camping trips and we pull out the rods again and we go fishing and all my kids, none of us are avid recreational fishermen all the time, yet we all love it and we all do it at regular, irregular intervals, if that makes sense. But every time I do, I have a sense of earthing, grounding, and I feel like everything my father taught me was to be a pure, honest man and to actually provide as best you can but to do it via nature, you know, via humble, natural ways. And um, so there's crazy stories many times where I've caught fish in my bare hands, where I've literally seen a, a mullet jump, skip up on the bank to, you know, giant mullet when I lived on the canal, skip up on the bank chasing flies. And then I've seen it do it twice. And then I thought it's going to do it a third time. And my mum's gone, what's he doing? I've sprinted down and dived off the rock wall under the sand. And it's the mullet's gone, I've caught it in my hands, you know, and, caught so many fish my dad we went camping once together and we decided to take no food and we went up to pancake creek <laughs> up cool. in north queensland and we're driving there in the duck to this creek from 1770 straight across a bay and all we did was took some noodles to match and some some baked beans and no other food and for a five-day camping trip and i took a spear gun and fishing rod and we went and we cast around everything and I said, Dad, we're going to have to go back and I might try a quick spear before dark because we've got nothing for dinner tonight. We've set up the camp and we literally have no food. And we drive in in the dark and I said, it's all right, Dad, we'll, don't worry, we'll get something. And he's like, I hope we do, son. You're the fisherman now, you know, he's a bit older. And we literally drove the duck up on the bank 
to go grab the spear gun. When I drove the duck up, I went, and I went, what was that? And I picked up the propeller and I ran over this big, big shovel nose. Of course you had. And look, pulled it out and go, Dad, I've got dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the most beautiful um, flake that night and everything else. And it's this crazy thing. It's, it's life feeds you when you're open to it, I reckon. And um, so the big penguin's onto it. He's tuned in to me and asked me the exact right question because I feel like how do you provide your, well, your fish, your yeah. fish through life? You, you look for opportunities, you put your bait out, you care for people and you sit in the right spot at the right time and you, you feel that line and whether it's a job, whether it's helping someone, whether it's providing, it's, it's, it's all like fishing to me. Trev, we've come to our end because you've got to go to dinner and I've got to go to work. Um, as always, you've filled me with joy. So thanks for having a chat with us on the Howie Games, mate. It's um, yeah, it's, it's great to see you again. We should do it more often. Friends always say thanks, that. Mate. But, mate, it's uh, I never knew that about travelling around the country and I better go and buy a bloody caravan now. Yeah, that's right. Good on you, Trev. And Clado, the old world champ, <laughs> yeah, he's taking it. his kids around the Is country he? next year in a caravan. There so there you go. I'll have to knock you off. Good on you, Trevor. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much to the ever-positive, warm, happy and inspiring customer that is Trevor Hendy. If you want to know more about Trev, check out trevorhendy.com. There's a series of workshops that you can do with Trev, one-on-one or in a group, and I can assure you time spent with Trev is time well spent. Thanks as always to Michael James, our producer, continues to get us to air when we have no money, but we are continuing along. And as the pickle and the penguin told you, from next week, the Howie Games goes behind the scenes with the biggest names in the Big Bash. We'll bring you big interviews with big cricketers. So a lot to look forward to until next Thursday when we start our Big Bash Summer Special. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener